The following sermon is by Hunter Hayes, Assistant Pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Hunter. Open your Bibles to Galatians 1, and we'll, uh, we'll get right into it. Well, in May of the year 1587... a group of intrepid adventurers set out from England. Ninety men, seventeen women, and nine children. Set out on a voyage to the New World to establish a colony and hopefully find a wonderful new life. They took all their, everything that they needed with them, books, maps, pictures. They even had a ceremonial suit of armor for the governor of that would-be colony. They landed, they thought they had everything they needed off of the, uh, off the coast of North Carolina, actually. Less than a month into the establishment of this colony, however, they realized they were going to need more supplies. So Governor John White sailed back to England. He was hoping to return the following spring with the supplies that would be necessary for this fledgling colony. But due to many issues in the homeland, uh, the rise of the Spanish Armada and the need to supply ships and other things to that effort, John White wasn't able to return to this colony until three years later, and it wasn't until, the, until August of 1590 that his ship began coming upon the shores of North Carolina again. And at first, there was a glimmer of hope because Governor White saw smoke rising, and so he assumed, okay, well, that's good. That means there is life. There's something here. And unfortunately, upon closer examination, it turned out that was just a forest fire. John White came upon what is known as the lost colony of Roanoke, and there was no trace of anyone to be found. There was, however, an inscription on a post that showed at least some sign that there was something there, and it, had, it said Croatone, which... Uh, there was an agreement between the governor and the colonists that if something happened and they decided to go somewhere else, they would leave some sort of inscription to let them know. He explored the surrounding islands of Croatoan, but uh, nothing was to be found. It is one of the mysteries in our nation's founding in the early years in the 1500s. The lost colony of Roanoke. And this is a, just a simple illustration just to give you the idea of what it would be like to have the horror and the mystery of coming and finding that a settlement that you had established had completely disappeared and had faded away. And the reason I bring your attention to this is because I want that to highlight what it might be like for a gospel worker to come and find that those that he has labored among have abandoned the gospel. This certainly is the feeling that the Apostle Paul could have been having as he 
wrote to the Galatian believers. He had established the churches of Galatia on his first missionary journey. And now he's writing to them in the book of Galatians because he's alarmed about a report of some false teaching that had come into the churches since he left. This is false teaching that challenged the gospel and threatened to capsize these churches that Paul had invested in. Now here's a warning for us. It is possible for a church to exist, but to be spiritually dead because it denies the gospel. And in fact, there are many churches in our surrounding area that this may be characteristic of. Though there may be steeples, that may just be like the rising smoke that Governor John White saw as he approached the shores of North Carolina. A sign of life, perhaps, a glimmer, but inside there's nothing but devastation. And I think this is a, a serious tone, but I think this is an appropriate tone because this is the tenor of Paul's letter to the Galatians. This letter is unusual compared to Paul's other letters because it gets right down to business. There's no commendation. There's no extended prayer of, of you know, I'm just thanking the Lord for everything that I see happening um, through the gospel and the work. No, Paul gets right down to business in this letter. There's a very brief greeting, basically just stating who he is and, and why he's writing, and then he just launches right into it. So let's read together Galatians 1, and I'm just going to read down through verse 9. So we'll begin in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now, as I mentioned, Paul launches right into this letter, okay? He's trying to get the attention of the Galatian churches. In verse 6, he, he starts out saying, I am astonished. This word thalmazo in Greek, it is, it is one of, of Paul just trying to express pure bewilderment, right? This is, this is a word that is used 35 times in the Gospels and Acts, okay? This is uh, the kind of amazement that people had as they are uh, witnessing Jesus' miracles, okay? It's true astonishment, true wonder. In Matthew 8, 27, the disciples in the boat when Jesus calmed the waves, it says that they marveled, okay? This is the same word. They marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? It's a mystery. It's something to be amazed at. But now think of this in a negative sense. Paul is amazed. He's astonished that these Galatian believers are so quickly deserting 
him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now, just a little side comment. When it says they are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, uh, I know that there could be some debate here whether that could be, you know, referring to the, the fact that God calls unbelievers into the grace of Christ. Uh, no, I think this is a personal, a, a personal note from Paul saying, basically, I'm, I'm so, I'm astonished that you're turning from me because I delivered to you the gospel, but you're listening to people who are turning you away from what I'm saying, and they're even inciting um, false charges against me, right? So Paul is actually very serious in this letter, and he has some very strong things that he wants to say. Now, if you're taking notes and if you have a bulletin, um, you'll see that there, there's, there's sort of a main idea of, of this message that I, that I want to give to you today, and this is the main idea of Galatians. All right, it's, we must, be ne- we must be careful to never turn away from or, disport, or distort the gospel of Christ. We must be careful to never turn away from or distort the gospel of Christ. I'm so thankful that the Lord has provided letters like this from the inspired apostle Paul to help us know that there are some things that we must keep very carefully, very um, on, you know, on the straight and narrow path. We must stay committed to until we die. The gospel is one of those things. Now, why, why is it? Why must we stay, why must we be careful never to turn away from the gospel? Well, we can just take from our text here. Um, first of all, there is no other gospel. So you can't even claim, basically, to follow another gospel because there is no other one. There is no other gospel that can save people. And this is what Paul says in verses 6 and 7. I, he's astonished that they're turning away to a different gospel, but he says not that there really is one but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the, the true gospel of Christ. So anything else that claims to be a gospel that departs from the actual gospel of Christ is a distortion of the true gospel. It's not another way to be saved. There's one way to be saved, and that's through Jesus Christ. Now, another, thi- another reason why we should be careful, why we should be on our guard never to turn away from the gospel, is because there have always been people who have distorted the true gospel. This, again, is just another angle of looking at verse 7, right? There are some who trouble you, he re- referring to the Galatians, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, this is something that has taken place since the foundation of the church. There have always been people who have crept into the church unnoticed. There have been people who have uh, claimed to be preaching Christ, but in reality, they're preaching an empty false gospel, right? They're distorting the truth. So it is right for us to be wary and to be aware that there may be those who are trying to do this. So we must be careful never to turn away from the gospel. And then finally, why we must be careful. To distort the gospel is an offense worthy of the strongest possible curse. And that's what we see in verses 8 and 9. Paul, Paul says one thing and then he just repeats it. He really wants to drill it into your head. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed. He repeats that again, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And that word, anathema, is an extremely strong statement. For, for years of church history, this was the label that was branded on heretics, anathema. 
This is, the idea behind this word, by the way, is delivering someone over to the final judgment of God. Okay? So, now, I don't, I don't want to, you know, step on toes or offend anyone, but, you know, to put it so boldly, Paul is basically saying that person can go to hell. Okay? And in, in the truest sense of the word. If you distort the gospel, people's lives are at stake, okay? Because people may be believing something false. They may be being led away from Christ while you are in the name of Christ preaching something that is totally false. So these are strong words that Paul delivers at the beginning of this letter. Now, just as a quick aside, right? I want to be very clear with you and, and try to be very honest. If me or Josh should ever preach to you a gospel contrary to the true gospel, you need to send us on our way. Right? This, this is the kind of seriousness with which we ought to consider the gospel. Because even, even an angel from heaven, if he— yeah, I mean, I, I think of Paul saying, you know, even if I speak in the tongue of men and angels but have not love, you know, Paul, Paul's mind is going places right now. And this is, this is why it's not so offensive that he says, you know, someone can go to hell if they preach the wrong gospel. Because he's saying, yeah, I should too if I preach something different than what Christ has commanded me to preach. We need to have a sober warning and a sober seriousness towards the gospel. All right, so now we get to the golden question. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? And this is something that, um, you know, has been pondered by many. And and I I would ask you, you know, how would you articulate the gospel? If you needed to go share the gospel with someone uh, out on the street, what would you say? How can somebody be saved? We need to have these things clear in our mind so we can understand when someone is preaching a false gospel. Well, I'll just direct you again to the text for the answer to that question. What is the true gospel? Well, it's the one that Paul preached. We see that in verse 8. A gospel contrary to the one that we preached and a gospel contrary to the one you received. What does you received mean? It doesn't mean the one that you individually received necessarily, although... I'm confident to say that most here have received the true gospel. But in the context, Paul is writing to the Galatians. What is the gospel that they received? This is recorded for us in Scripture, right? What Paul preached is recorded for us in Scripture. Okay, I think most of us as good Baptists, if we were going to sort of give an overview of the gospel, I think we might say something like this. I think we might say, um, you know, Jesus died for your sins on the cross, and he rose again so that you may have new life, and by repenting of your sins and believing in Jesus, you can be saved. If if you preach that gospel, I praise the Lord, because that that is a a very good summary, I think, of, of what's going on. But I, I want to be careful as, as I think through um, how Paul talks about the gospel and how he uses it. Um, I do believe that Paul's gospel was bigger and, and more expansive than that, okay? I'm not saying that everything that Paul taught, um, you know, the, the, the fullness of his gospel needs to be completely comprehended in order for someone to be saved, but I do think it's, it's bigger than just, you know, sin, the cross, and salvation, basically. 
Okay, and I, I would reference, uh, you know, Romans 1, 6, where uh, Paul says that the gospel is that which was promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. And, um, you know, it's the one that's concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. And, you know, I just think, you know, how many of us, when we're sharing the gospel, actually start with the Old Testament, like Paul would have, Right. How many of us—and oh, I'm not just talking about, like, Isaiah 7 and the virgin birth, right? I'm talking about, uh, you know, Paul was this great theologian. He had, a, he had a wonderful mind. He was an expert in the Old Testament law, and he knew exactly how Jesus fulfilled every prophecy about him and what that meant in God's grand scheme, which includes the cross and salvation, but also includes so much more about our future and what Christ is going to do. I, I would point to— uh, 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul does say there, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, right? And, and some might say, okay, well, see, Paul is, is prioritizing what's important about the gospel, and, and that may be true, but he also says this is in accordance with the scriptures. In accordance with what scriptures? The Old Testament scriptures. And then Paul goes on to say that uh, there's more to it. There's, not only did he die for our sins, but he also rose again from the dead. And then he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers. And then he says he appeared to me last of all. And so, uh, again, when I'm talking about, you know, the gospel, how many of us really go into the appearance of Jesus, everything he did after he rose and before he ascended, and then— uh, explain how that relates to apostolic authority, right? All of these, I think, are, are bound up in the term gospel and the, and the idea of the good news that is preached, okay, and the good news that, that Paul would have preached. And even later in that chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, um, you know, Paul is going to say some amazing, thing, amazing things about how uh, Christ is going to deliver over the kingdom to his father and the final enemy to, defeat, to be defeated is death. And that's something that's happening in the future, okay? So there is a, there's a, a very bigness to the entire gospel, okay? But just, just so that I don't lose you, just so I don't confuse you, I do want to make it clear, okay? I want to tell you what you cannot leave out of the gospel and what Paul never would leave out, Okay? So, number one, without a crucified Savior, you have no gospel. Without a crucified Savior, you have no gospel. Uh, there's a man by the name of Steve Chalk, and he made waves a number of years ago by saying that the doctrine of penal substitution, the idea that uh, Christ died on the cross and was crushed by the Father, is, uh, is nonsense, and it, and it shouldn't be taught, uh, because this is the idea of divine child abuse. That was, that was the term he, he coined. Uh, his, his quote is that uh, the idea of the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross is a theory— rooted in violence and retributive notions of justice, and it's incompatible with any authentically Christian understanding of the character of God. Now, this sounds all well and good if, if you know, if you buy into the idea that, oh, yeah, this guy knows the scripture and, and he has a lot of insightful things. But, but no, that, that directly contradicts what scripture teaches. In Isaiah 53, verse 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
Again, in that chapter, Isaiah 53, in in verse 10, it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. So we do see that it was actually the will of the Father to crush his own son. Why, Why would that be? Why would the Father crush his own son? To make atonement for sin. That, that, that's, that's the beauty of the gospel, is that the perfect love and perfect justice meets at the cross. Because all of us are guilty sinners. We have no way of paying for our own sins, but that's what Jesus came to do. He came to take upon himself our horrendous, filthy, disgusting sins, being the perfect Savior, and to be crushed under the weight that we deserved to be crushed under. And it says that was, that was God's will. Romans 3.25, talking about Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So the gospel must have a crucified Savior. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what Paul teaches. Uh, another thing you must have, you, without a risen Lord, you have no gospel. Okay, without a risen Lord. Christ is risen from the dead. As we've already talked about, he appeared to many disciples. He appeared to Paul himself. And he ascended to heaven where he sits at the Father's right hand. Another thing that I, I, you cannot leave out of the gospel, uh, I would say that without communicating the need for faith in Jesus and repentance, you are merely stating facts about the cross without calling for their appropriation in the lives of sinners. All right? So you could, you could talk about the significance of the cross and everything that God did for us. You could talk about the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. But if you don't actually make it personal in people's lives and say, you need to repent and turn from your sins and trust in Christ, you're not actually preaching the gospel. It would be like, telling, it would, it would be like describing the amazing miracles that Moses performed or, or like boasting about these great deeds that God was going to do in the Exodus without actually calling the people out of Egypt. That's what a gospel without communicating the need for faith in Jesus and repentance would be. So all of these elements uh, need to be present, I believe, in sharing the true gospel. And, and to see that this is actually Paul's gospel, that this is truly the gospel that Paul would preach, that he wouldn't leave any of that out, I want to actually walk you through an example of Paul sharing the gospel. And I think it's a pertinent one um, in Acts 13. And you can actually put the slide up here. Uh, if, or you can also turn to Acts 13 um, if, you're, if you're sitting in the pews right now. We're just going to read through this. I'm just going to make a couple little comments. Uh, this would have been on Paul's first missionary journey, so very close to the time that the Galatian churches were established. So it would be very close to the kind of gospel he would be proclaiming as he came to town. So starting in verse uh, 16, um, you'll notice, as was, was Paul's habit, he goes and delivers this to the Jewish synagogue. So Paul's message is very Jewish, okay? But it's starting with the Old Testament scriptures. He says, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, He gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. 
Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. So notice that the context in which Jesus is introduced is actually as an offspring of David. So in Paul's gospel, there's a continuity of the biblical storyline. Uh, we continue reading. And as John was—sorry, in verse 24. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers— Sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. This, this just reminds me that Paul says his gospel is to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. That's in Romans 1.16. The good news is to the Jew first and then the Gentile. Why? Because this is the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures, the fulfillment of the Jewish prophecies. God presented, Jesus Christ presented himself to Israel, to Paul's brothers, right? Sons of the family of Israel. We continue in, in verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate, to have him executed. There you have a crucified Savior. And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it was written in the second psalm. So here, here he is. He's saying, look, this is the good news. This is the good news that God has fulfilled his word by raising Jesus. The promise he made to the fathers, he has fulfilled to the children. Who are the children? The children are the ones descended from Abraham, Right? So it's, it's astonishing how, how Paul's message is very Jewish, and yet we know that that's the case because he's giving this in a Jewish synagogue. Uh, we continue reading. Uh, you are my son, today I have begotten you, in verse 33. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Do you see how he makes it personal? Forgiveness is not just proclaimed in general, it's proclaimed to you. You can take hold of this forgiveness by embracing the truth of the gospel. Verse 39, And by him, everyone who believes 
is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Man, this right here, this verse pertains so much to Galatians. I just, I want to spend time on that, but I can't. Uh, Verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Now, here's the response. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. That's great. That's a good response. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling them. That's a bad response. That is, a, uh, that is acting contrary to the gospel. That is opposing the gospel. And that's something that Paul's going to deal with throughout his ministry. Now in verse 46, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, first to the Jews, to the Jew first, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life, what do they do? They believed, right? So there you have an example of Paul preaching the gospel. And I think I've established that the gospel must include at least this. It must include that Christ died on the cross for our sins. It must include that Christ is risen and he is Lord. And you must believe in him for salvation from your sins, right? If we want to talk about bare bones, bare minimum, which, you know, I'm actually not all about minimums, but if we have to, I will say you cannot leave those things out. But I think another thing that's also pertinent to talk about, and especially with our discussion of Galatians, and you can turn back there right now to Galatians 1, another thing we need to talk about is what you must never add. What you must never add to the gospel. The issue that Paul is dealing with in this book is the issue of the heresy that is against the, ju- the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Okay, those are some big words that I use, so I'm going to try to unpack it for you, okay? Because this is uh, essential for us to understand uh, what Paul means when he's writing this letter to the Galatians. Um, what Paul's opponents are proclaiming when he says, there are some who trouble you, in verse 7 of Galatians 1, who want to distort the gospel of Christ, uh, what they're actually saying can be ascertained uh, from the way Paul responds in this letter, okay? And I'm just going to summarize it for you because we don't have enough time. It boils down to this. They wanted to force the Galatian believers who had received the gospel initially, they wanted to force them to be circumcised in accordance with the law of Moses as part of their salvation, saying this is necessary if you want to be a true follower of God, right? Now, significantly— for this discussion, the Old Testament law actually did prescribe circumcision as a requirement for the covenant community. If you wanted to be part of—if you wanted to be in the covenant, if you wanted to be part of the community, uh, and, and this is scripture, right? You had to be circumcised, Exodus twelve forty four. 
The, so, so the opponents in Galatia would have actually, believe it or not, they probably would have seen themselves as the ones who were being faithful to Scripture. That, they probably would have thought that. But thank goodness Paul is, a, is an expert in the Old Testament, right? He knows that it does prophesy that there will be a day when the Mosaic law becomes obsolete. And that day has arrived, as Paul has preached in, Galatia, in Acts 13, as we read. But what Paul's enemies thought they saw in the law of Moses was a system of works-based righteousness. They thought that what, what the Old Testament is teaching us is that our way to get to God, our way to get to heaven, is by good works and by keeping the law. And this is something that Paul is going to say, absolutely not. The law was our tutor to lead us to Christ— Christ is our only hope of salvation. The law shows that we can't keep it. That's the beauty of the law. If you've ever tried to keep the commandments and do good things, you quickly realize that you can't keep it perfectly. Every one of us knows that we've told a lie. We've, you know, some of us may have stolen things. It doesn't matter. If you, if you break one commandment, you're, you are guilty of 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 everything. You, you know, if, if you break one law, you are guilty of the whole commandments. But this is the beauty, right? This is what Paul is going to make very clear in Galatians 2.16. He's going to say, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul will demonstrate in this letter, using the Jewish scriptures, by the way, that salvation has always been granted on the basis of faith alone in Christ. Abraham believed God, he'll write, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That comes from Genesis, and that's also in Galatians 3.6. Galatians 3, the law was never meant to be a means of salvation. It was a tutor to lead us to Christ. So, Rather than su summarizing the whole letter for you, I'm going to just simplify the issue to this, okay? And I actually wrote this out, so hopefully it's helpful. Salvation comes by believing in Christ alone. His substitutionary death on the cross is the only thing that will make you acceptable before God. No effort, no human achievement is necessary in order to make you righteous in God's eyes, okay? That's something you can take to the bank. In fact, you need to put all of your trust in Christ because Paul's going to say— if you accept circumcision, you're obligated to keep the whole law. If you really think the law is there to save you, you better be able to keep the whole thing. If your trust is in your good works, then you've missed the point of the gospel. This was Paul's concern with this letter and why he goes to bat, why he starts out the letter so seriously. The Galatian believers were in danger of compromising the gospel in a fatal way by listening to those who said, no, you need to add these works. Now, what are the specific charges against the gospel? We can also ascertain this, even just from the first chapter of Galatians. Um, what would the opponents of the gospel, of the true gospel, uh, do to try to uh, fight against the true gospel of Christ? Well, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to question the messenger. They're going to call him an inferior messenger. Paul's apostolic authority was under attack, and this we know because of the very first verse of Galatians. 
He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Apostle is the second word in the Greek. The first word is Paul, (laughs) so you know who it's from. Second thing is apostle. It's like him flashing his badge and saying, by the way, listen to me. I am an apostle. I am one who is sent from God. I have delegated authority to speak on behalf of God, and I'm not sent from men. I am sent from God. Not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He's saying, you need to listen to my words as if Jesus Christ himself was telling you this, because I am sent from him. Okay, that is a outstanding claim. Nobody can make that claim today, by the way. (laughs) If anyone makes that claim, run, okay? And some do. Uh, Verse 15 of chapter 1. When he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Paul is actually making the case that, look, my gospel didn't originate with man. It wasn't shared secondhand with me. It was shared to me directly from Jesus Christ. And this is one of the authentic marks of a true apostle is that they were actually commissioned directly by Jesus Christ. So the first attack against messengers of the gospel or against the gospel message is to actually attack the messenger. And by the way, this is true today. If you're preaching the true gospel, people will try to discredit you. People will try to discredit you as a false witness. And this is also why we need to keep our conduct pure among the Gentiles, right? Because we shouldn't have any charges against us. If we're bearing the good news of Christ, we need to be faithful messengers, right? Because it's so easy, and Satan loves to do this. He loves to attack those who preach the true gospel. The second attack, the second charge against the true gospel that Paul preaches, one is that it's an inferior messenger. Two is that it's an inferior source, right? It's, it's related to the, to the first aspect, that, but the inferior source is the idea that Paul's gospel is man-made. This is why he's saying that I didn't receive it from any man. This is not a man-made gospel. This is a gospel that comes from Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11. Galatians 1.11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so not only do we see that Paul is being attacked with these false charges against him, but he's actually having to defend it by saying, look, I was appointed directly by Jesus Christ, and— the gospel that I received is not from any man. I'm telling you right now, I received it from Jesus Christ. Now, what, what, are the, what is the fullness of the defenses that Paul is going to give? So if you're, if you're following along in the notes, if you have a bulletin, you'll see that there's, um, you know, it says, you know, main idea, we must be careful never to turn away from the gospel. Why? Now, I, I give you a little, a little supplemental information here, right? And this will help for understanding what Paul is writing here, but also um, understand how to actually truly defend the gospel. So these are evidences of the authenticity of Paul's gospel that he's going to give us, okay? You know, I've already kind of beat this like a dead horse, but uh, Paul was commissioned by God and not by man. That's in Galatians 1.1. That's what we looked at, okay? Um, Paul's gospel wasn't even delivered to him through man, 
Again, in verse 12, I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, the third thing is that Paul is not seeking the approval of man, okay? Which would have been a, a, a charge that the, the false teachers in Galatia could have made. They could have said, look, he just wants to, uh, you know, build up his own reputation. He's trying to mislead you by giving you a false gospel. Paul would say nothing is further from the truth. In verse 10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So here's what that teaches us about faithfully proclaiming the true gospel. If your gospel is catered to the listeners, if it's meant to please man, then you are not serving God. The, the way it's actually written in the Greek is, it's, it's emphatic. It's, if I were still trying to please man, a servant of Christ, I am not. On the contrary, though, if you preach the true gospel, the message that is foolishness to those who are perishing, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, if you preach the true gospel to please your heavenly Father, then a servant of ignorant men you are not. You are serving God, even if you're rejected. Uh, the final evidence that Paul's going to give, and this is by way of implication, but the final evidence that Paul's gospel is a true gospel is that Paul's gospel transformed his life. We see this in verse 13. As he writes very, an, an impassioned plea to the Galatians, he says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father, of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So if, if this is where the story stopped, we would all applaud, right? We would all be, yes, okay. Paul was killing Christians. He literally uh, had letters to go to Damascus to round up the Christians and to kill them, and instead he got saved, right? That would be something to praise God for. But the, the, the beauty of the gospel and the effect in Paul's life is that not only did it cause him to stop persecuting the church, it actually made him the greatest promoter. In verse, uh, in verse 23, it says, you know, Paul says he wasn't known to the churches in Judea, but they only were here, and it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So the, the believers in the early church were at first incredulous about this Paul man, because we know, we know his, his reputation is one who, who killed Christians, but it turns out he's actually now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and then this is the one that, that God is going to use to write all these letters from, from which we get incredible doctrine, right? God used Paul in an amazing way, and that is part of what— uh, gives evidence that his gospel is a true gospel. The true gospel will transform people's lives. It will lead to repentance. It will lead to demonstrable results. 
okay? You can be, you, you, you can be sure that a gospel that has no power, that has no evidence of transformation in the lives of individuals, there, there is probably something wrong with that gospel. All other gospels fall short than the one, the gospel of Christ. They might produce superficial results as people try to clean up their act, but only the gospel of God's grace in Christ leads to real repentance. All right, let me be quick here, but let me give you three gospels, three false gospels to avoid in our day. Okay, these are ones that uh, you could probably hear in some churches around us. You could probably, uh, you know, if you did enough Googling, I'm sure you could run into these. Uh, the first false gospel that we need to avoid is Christ plus your good works will lead to heaven. And this is a natural one for me to talk about because we're talking about Galatians, and they wanted to add circumcision as a necessary act, right? What this gospel teaches is that Jesus gets you started on the path to heaven. The cross was good enough to bring you perhaps to a relationship with God, but you must contribute your good works through a lifetime of obedience, and that's the only way you'll be saved, is if you prove yourself worthy. God will only accept you if you show that you're worthy of forgiveness. So what's wrong with this gospel is that, like all man-made religions, this is a gospel of works-based salvation. You have to do good works in order to be saved. Uh, this is the error of both the Orthodox and the Roman Catholic view of salvation, at least according to the official teachings of the Church. I'm not saying that every, you know— person who, you know, claims to be a Roman Catholic believes this, but the actual teachings of the church itself would be that justification is not by grace alone through faith alone in the finished work of Christ on the cross, but Paul, remember, he made that no mistake in Galatians 2.16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. If you rely on your own works to save you, you will always end up short. Paul reminded the Galatians, again, if, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no value to you. You will be obligated to keep the whole law. So we must reject this false gospel that somehow you need to have Christ and your own good works that you contribute. No, that's, that's totally not it. You must bend the knee and come to Christ offering nothing and just realize that you are totally destitute, devoid of anything that God could see in you that makes you worthy. That, that is the true gospel, that Christ came and died for us while we were yet his enemies. We have nothing to contribute. Galatians, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace— you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. There is a second false gospel that we need to avoid. And by the way, when I say avoid, I mean we need to run from these false gospels. We need to call people away from these false gospels. We need to have the urgency that Paul had when he wrote to the Galatians. The second false gospel is this. It would be saying that the good news— is that Jesus wants you to be happy and wants to fulfill all your dreams. Right? This is, this is the prosperity gospel that we've, we've heard about, probably. This is the kind of gospel that will pack stadiums because it tickles the ears of listeners. God wants you to be happy. He wants you to be healthy. He wants you to believe him to receive those things. On the surface, of course, this sounds good, right? Jesus fed people. Jesus healed people. Clearly, he cares about our temporal needs. God doesn't want any of his children to suffer, right? They might say. 
The only reason that you don't have everything you want in life is because you don't believe God for those things. This is a distortion of the gospel because it presents one aspect of God's character, but it ignores the purpose of Jesus' ministry and the heart of his message. Okay, you don't, you don't come to Jesus to be satisfied with earthly and temporary things. This is what the unbelieving crowds did when they came to Jesus in, in John chapter 6. Jesus said in, in 626, John, John 6, You are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that it endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. By the way, when the crowds asked him, what is this work? He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So Jesus definitely was not preaching a gospel of health, wealth, and prosperity. And the idea that you could come to Jesus and have all your longings satisfied, all your earthly longings. No, he had a, a deeper longing in mind. He said in, in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That is a, a deep longing, that if you have a, a desire for righteousness, to be righteous before God, that is something that Jesus says, I can help with this. Um, I, I think of a, a great uh, counter to this false gospel, this false prosperity gospel, is the attitude of Jim Elliot. Many of us are aware of Jim Elliot, the missionary to the Aka Indian tribe in Ecuador. And uh, by the way, Jim Elliot died presenting the gospel to this tribe of Indians. Uh, they killed him as he was trying to reach out to them. Uh, later, his wife continued the missionary work, and this tribe ended up getting saved. It's one of the most profound stories. If you haven't ever heard it, you should go look it up. But Jim Elliot's quote was this. He said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Right? And this is what has attracted us to the gospel, is that though we have nothing to offer God, and though we might not necessarily be promised earthly prosperity, we come to Christ for eternal life. He has words of eternal life. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. This is what the gospel needs to point to. There's a third and final false gospel that we need to uh, be wary of and we need to avoid. The final false gospel is that the good news is that Jesus reconciles man to fellow man. The good news is that Jesus reconciles man to fellow man. This is a subtle false gospel that has crept into the church. And again, it sounds good on the surface, right? Jesus taught us that we need to love one another. We need to respect one another's uh, views and pass no judgment on the way that others live. Uh, you know, it would say that Jesus came and showed us how to have peace and harmony on earth. So what's wrong with this? Again, this ignores the central message of Jesus during his earthly ministry and the real purpose for which he came. Jesus came to reconcile sinners to God. He didn't come to make us all happy and, and harmonious among one another. Although that, that is a byproduct of the gospel, okay? I'm going to say that. What's ironic, though, is that people— will never truly be reconciled to one another until they are reconciled to God. Okay, what I mean by that is this. When Paul is talking about the hostility between Jews and Gentiles, in the first century, this would have been probably, you can't think of two groups who are more opposed to each other. This is what he wrote. He said, For he himself, this is in Ephesians 2, 
For he himself, referring to Christ, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So the issue is not that we just need to all learn how to coexist and live together, and that's what Jesus taught us. No. The issue is that we're alienated from God, every one of us. Our hostility, our warring among each other, our factions, our disputes, can all be traced to the problem of our hearts, that we are alienated from God. But when we come to Christ, this is the beauty of the gospel, when we come to Christ for forgiveness of sins, as Paul teaches in Ephesians we are made into one new man and united to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? The closer we get to God, the closer we get to one another. So if you preach a gospel of peace among men, but ignore the real issue of our need to be reconciled to God through the cross, then you're left with a utopian vision that has no real power. This is a false gospel we need to avoid. Let me just, let me just read this verse from 1 Corinthians, and, and we'll be done, but it's something that we should consider about our own calling, right? Those of us who have believed in Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the true gospel that Guilty sinners can be saved. That all of us, as guilty sinners, we would be no different than anyone in the world except that Christ cared for us, that he came into the world, that he shed his own blood to pay for our sins, and we're washed, we're sanctified, we're justified in the name of Jesus. This is the gospel that we need to be faithful, and I pray that Emmanuel Baptist is faithful until Jesus returns to this gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we, we worship you. We praise you. Lord, we thank you that though we are weak in our own efforts and though we are so prone to sinning against you, Lord, that you died for us while, you were, while we were your enemies. Lord, we can always come back to that when we're struggling with a legalistic sense that we need to be doing something to contribute to our salvation. God, thank you that by works of the law, no man shall be justified. Thank you that it's by faith in Christ alone. Lord, would you press upon us the truth of the gospel and the urgency that the world needs to hear this, and may we be faithful to proclaim it. Amen. You've been listening to Hunter Hayes, Assistant Pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com 
That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.